Tonight's second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 30, which is found on 1039 on my pew Bible. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came... Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, then, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit from the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the, to the Mount of Olives. Well, good evening, friends. I couldn't help noticing when Chris made the announcement about the growth groups. You can see Josiah or myself. He is the one with the six-pack, but nothing said about me. I've got one too. It's just under a thick layer of fat, but anyway. Um, there is an outline. Hopefully you did get one. There is also a talk transcript if you do need that, if you find that helpful. But let's uh, pray. We'll be looking at this. Do keep your Bibles open. We'll work our way all the way through. So keep it open. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight that we might all evermore appreciate how wonderful the death of Jesus was for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this evening by getting you to imagine a bit of this with me. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell. Below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world would be as one. Now, any ideas where that came from? It comes from the famous, world-famous song by John Lennon, Imagine. 
Now, I know many of you are way too young to know of this guy. This was a song that was released in 1971. Perhaps only a handful of us were born back then. But this is a song, I actually avoided breaking out in song when I was going through this, or almost, just in case, like church camp last year, I might accidentally win some Talent Quest award. But this is a world-famous song because it gets us to imagine a world where there is no more fighting, no more killing, no greed, no hunger, no religion too. Only peace. You see, it's a wonderful song, world-famous song, sung for many decades, a song that promotes unity across the world, across all peoples and all nations. And that's why this was a song chosen to be in the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics this past week in South Korea. But if you are to imagine such a world, take a moment, just imagine that type of world. Do you think it would be deeply satisfying? That that's the world you want. That that's the world you really want. What do you think? Well, I suspect that even if the world was a picture like that, a utopian picture like that, it doesn't really resolve the deeper problems of life. Of course, he didn't write that to resolve all the problems, but it doesn't solve the deeper problems of life. You see, if you look forward and you have that optimistic looking forward world that might be ahead but then behind you your life you carry lots of baggage and burdens and memories from a past that still haunts things that you know you'll be held accountable for even if the world might look like that it's actually not very satisfying and the reality is that none of us none of us here I've been in ministry for quite a number of years now to realize that none of us has a clean past, has a sinless past, has a pure past. Even in this moment, I suspect there might be some of us here with guilt that is haunting us. Even in this moment, I suspect some of us bear some shame of the past that we hope will never see the light of day. And even for some of us, I suspect here, there are past sins that go so deep in our life that we're afraid to go there. And so even if you do imagine such a world, it's actually not very satisfying. If I live in such a world but I still bear that guilt and burden of my past, I can't enjoy that type of world. And so I want you to consider what we'll be looking at tonight because this is the answer that gives us a better picture a better future. Consider, for example, a guy named John. This was a guy I remember hearing about when I was in high school. I had to walk home from school every day, not, not the easy life you guys get now, parents picking you up and all that. Back then, I had to walk a few kilometres each day. And each day after school, I would have to pass this shopping strip in Altona North. And often I would see this homeless guy just wandering around. You know, people knew he was homeless. He was always around there. And his name was John. Now, he's homeless not because of drugs or something silly, but he was homeless because he couldn't live with himself. He was involved in an accident which killed his whole family. And that's why he was homeless. And so tell him about John Lennon's song. Look at this world, utopian picture of the world. It wouldn't bring him any joy. He's got this past that has not been dealt with. And so today, we look at a better picture. Not just imagining what it might be, 
Today we actually look at what was in fact promised. What is true, promised by Jesus, not imagined, but a promise which deals completely and utterly with all our past, with all the baggage we might bear, with all the guilt and shame we might feel. What we see today is a promise of even a greater future than that picture from John Lennon, far better than we can ever imagine. And so let's have a look at this passage. At this point in the story, as we continue off from last week, the entire focus was the cross of Christ, his own death. And we have already seen that the death of Jesus was something that was divinely purposed, wickedly plotted, beautifully prepared, and treacherously pursued. And now in the story we come to Thursday, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what happened on this day? We'll have a look, verse 17. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, even what Jesus says there should just show us that he's in full control of what was about to happen. And then verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, there was a fair bit to prepare when you prepare for a Passover. You see, the Passover was one of the most significant, if not the most significant, festival in the Jewish calendar. It was the festival that marked the birth of their nation, the birth of their country. And it was to commemorate how God delivered them out of slavery from Egypt to their land. Now, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, which we read in our first reading, you'd be familiar with how the Passover came about. You see, there was ten plagues, and the last plague, the tenth plague, God was to send across Egypt, was to wipe out all firstborns. Firstborn people, firstborn livestock. But the Israelites, in our reading, we saw they were warned. If you take a lamb, keep it at home for a few days, then on the 14th day of the month, slaughter the animal, take the blood, and spread it across the sides and the top of the door. Now just imagine that if you were in that family back then. You have to keep this little cute little lamb for a few days. Imagine what the kids in the house were thinking. That, that lamb was probably Bambi for a few days. Dad, what do you do to Bambi? Why is there blood everywhere? But you see, that, okay, well, anyway, that was necessary so that the firstborn would be spared. And so that night, we read, God passed over the house, and that's where we get the word Passover from. Passed over the houses where the lamb was killed so that the firstborn might live. And so that morning, the disciples went out making preparation for this very important meal. Then next, in the evening at supper now, a prediction was made. Another one. I mean, Jesus has given quite a few by this time. Everything was headed towards the cross. Jesus, by this time, has already told them the place that it was to happen. We heard that a few chapters earlier. It was to happen in Jerusalem. Now, they were in Jerusalem at this time. Jesus has already warned them when it will take place. And we were told that it was going to be during the Passover. And it was now the Passover. And now what Jesus does is he discloses to the disciples who will make it happen. It's getting narrower and narrower. His prediction is becoming sharper. Look at verse 20. 
When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. I mean, those are shocking words. This was an important meal for them to celebrate. But yet for Jesus to tell his closest friends, one of you will betray me. Now imagine what the disciples would have been thinking. Well, we actually know what they were thinking. They were confused. They said, not me. Verse 22, surely not I, Lord. But was Jesus unaware of what was happening? Well, of course not. Jesus knew perfectly well the one who would betray him was the one who was close to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man. There we hear that term again, that title again. Remember, that's the title Jesus prefers to use for himself. It's a title from Daniel 7 of the sovereign ruler given power by God to rule over everyone. And it is this Son of Man who will go as it is written about him. That is, he will be betrayed. And then we read, But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Just imagine hearing those damning words from Jesus. I mean, if I even dare to say that to anyone, it would be better for that person to not be born. After some reflection, I would recoil. I would say, sorry, I didn't mean that. But he, Jesus, meant it. It would be better for him not to be born. You can just imagine what Judas would have been thinking. He probably didn't appreciate or fully comprehend the gravity of what he was about to do. But he's taken the blood money already, and he asks now, verse 25, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. It makes you think, doesn't it? Why did Jesus let Judas know that he's the one to betray him? I just found that quite unusual and interesting. I know you'll betray me. I'm letting you know. I know you. I see you. I mean, it's a very strange thing. I mean, if I'm sitting around our family uh, dinner table and I just say, Woe to the child of mine who misbehaves tonight. It will be better for that child to never be born. And then, if one of my kids says to me, you know, with fear, surely not I, Dad. And for me, somehow, no, I see you. I know it is you. What do you think that child would do? Well, you expect him to behave that night. You expect him to behave... I'm just saying he, because I know that's a clue, but... (laughs) I expect him, and he would be expected to behave extremely well that night. I mean, to have that thought running through his head, it is better for me not to be born. But yeah, that was said to Judas. Now, why did Jesus point that out to Judas? I I just find that fascinating. Now, we're not told why. I don't know if this is true. But on one level, it might be perhaps just to give him a chance. I know it's you. You sure you really want to do this? But on another level, I suspect it just shows the wickedness of the human heart. I've exposed your heart. This is what it's like. You will betray me. He could turn. He could stop, but he does it anyway. It shows the weakness and depravity of the human heart. And now in the evening, we get to the actual supper. Now remember that they were celebrating the Passover. Hugely significant meal, remembering the great foundational beginnings of their nation. They celebrated this every year, remembering that 
that God wonderfully, powerfully delivered them from slavery, remembering that lambs were slaughtered all over the nation so that the firstborn might be spared. And now at this meal, Jesus did something extraordinary. The annual festival that they've been keeping year after year after year for about 1,500 years. And Jesus goes to them. He reinterprets it for them. You see, all that you've been remembering each year, all that you've been celebrating each year, it's all pointing to me. It's all looking forward to me. All that you were joyously celebrating about, it's in fact all about me. I mean, those are extraordinary claims from Jesus. It will be a bit like someone coming along and saying, you know how you celebrate Australia Day on the 26th of January? Well, let me tell you, it's all about me. I mean, that's, that's horrendous for anyone, ludicrous for anyone to say such a thing. Or be a bit like someone coming along and saying, you know how you celebrate Chinese New Year, which is coming this week. Or Asian New Year, because it's more politically, politically correct anyway. It's all about me. I mean, it's ludicrous for anyone to say such a thing, but that was what Jesus was saying about the Passover. But that was what Jesus was doing. And so he was making clear to his disciples what will happen to him was no accident. That this was the last meal that he had with his disciples before they died, before he died, was no accident. Jesus was not only, not only aware of what was about to happen to him, he now goes and explains why it must happen to him. And so what did Jesus say at this meal? Well, he reinterprets it for them. The Passover sacrifice, remember that lamb, that only delivered you from slavery in Egypt. But what will happen after this is that I will be sacrificed, not a lamb, to deliver you from sin and death itself. You see, the problem with the John Lennon song, it looks forward, it doesn't deal with the past. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that he will deal with all our past. It will deal with all the guilt and shame of our past. The blood of bulls and goats could never do. And so Jesus is saying to them, all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were all pointing to me, the ultimate sacrifice. Not an animal in place of people, but me, the Son of God, in place of you. So that no longer now would you be remembering the Passover, from now on, you'll be remembering me. Extraordinary claims of Jesus. But he's making clear to them his death was for this purpose. His life was broken for a broken people. His life was broken so that broken people might be forgiven. And so now we come to those famous words we hear each time when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean his literal body, just take a bite out of my arm. The bread was to symbolize that his body, his, his body would be broken, that he would die. And then verse 27, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is telling them why he must die. Not just that he will die, but why he must die, and it was for them, 
for the forgiveness of their sins to establish this new covenant. Now, you may have heard that, that word before, but a covenant is just like a contract, a very serious contract. It was the way in which God related to his people in the Old Testament. It sets out the terms of the agreement, and often it is sealed by blood. In fact, that's how ancient contracts work. And that's why in the language in the Old Testament was, you don't make a covenant, but you cut a covenant. It's because often with covenants, it involves cutting up animals, shedding blood. And when the animals are cut in half, it was a way of saying, I'm signing this covenant with blood by saying, over my dead body, just like the animals, that I will break my promise. And so if you think about covenants today, we still do have covenants today like the marriage covenant. But all we do today is really just sign some papers, get a few witnesses, and it is all legal and legitimate. But just imagine how stronger marriages would be in society if we had a sacrifice at that covenant as well. An animal was killed at a wedding. You know, no one would dare to divorce after seeing that, right? But that's how serious covenants were. But here, of course, God establishes a new covenant. And God keeps this covenant. A new covenant which he seals, not with the blood of animals now, but with the blood of his very own son, the ultimate and final sacrifice, the one who dies so that people might be forgiven, the one who dies so that the past of all people might be forgiven. All the guilt and shame we're afraid to share with anyone, the baggage and burdens of our past. How do you deal with the past? You cannot go and change the past. You cannot go back in time. This is how God has dealt with our past for us, to forgive us. So wonderful, but yet deadly costly. And so we have to understand how profound this event was. Jesus was explaining to his disciples, not just that he must die, but these are the reasons why he must die. And so we have to understand how profound that is. Now, in our household, we've been reading through Exodus in our family devotion. And yesterday we just finished Exodus 40. Exodus, only the first few chapters are interesting. That's with Moses and and then later a bit of the plagues, but then for chapter after chapter after chapter, you get all these laws and requirements and sacrifices after sacrifices. It was hard going trying to read chapter by chapter with our kids. It was very hard. But it was helpful to show us how wonderful Jesus is, how glorious what Jesus achieved. Because if we were still living in the Old Testament times, just imagine how tedious our life would have been sacrifice after sacrifice, obeying this law and that law, just so that we can deal with our past. But now Jesus has come, God's ultimate sacrifice, perfect sacrifice, the one who dies once for all, to deal with our past. And now towards the end of the night. Do you notice here that Jesus speaks of his death, but not just his death. He gives them a bit of hope. There's some joyful anticipation. If Jesus remained dead, he would be just like any other religious leaders of the world. But there's now this joyful anticipation. He won't be staying dead, but now there's this promise that they'll be joining him in the great banquet in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 29. 
I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so there is death, but there's also resurrection, and there's also the kingdom of God. And so now here in this story, we see the final meal Jesus had with his disciples. It's a very important meal. Reinterpret it, the history of Israel. It all pointed to him. But it should also help us see that there is something far greater, far better than we can ever imagine. You see, when we look at John Lennon's song, in the end, it might be nice to imagine. But the reality is that it's just wishful thinking. And it's just dreaming, just like he says in his lyrics. I mean, you might imagine that, but your past is filled with guilt and shame, and how can you take that away? People are still haunted by their past, their conscience nags, it condemns them, and it even torments them. I mean, if I imagine that type of world, and I'm not good, and I have a terrible past, that's going to be a terrible life anyway. But you see, in this passage, Jesus promises a better future for all of us. Not just heaven, but a place with God in eternity. But more than that, Jesus not only gets us to look forward, he gets us to see that by his death, he deals with our past, all our past, the guilt we might feel, the shame we might feel. And so whatever trail of hurt that we've left in our lives, and I know some of us has had a past, a past we're deeply ashamed of, people we've hurt deeply, that seems How can you ever fix that? Whatever shame and guilt we feel now because of our past, and I know there are many of us who feel this way, and it still haunts us, and it still challenges us and condemns us and torments us. How do you fix up your past? Well, the death of Jesus is the only thing that can deal with our past. And that is why we now still celebrate the Lord's Supper as a Christian church. We are to be reminded to remember the death of Jesus. As we share in the meal each time, we are to remember his death for us. And as we partake in it, it is to show that we trust in his death for us. We are reminded to do that often. It's because it's so easy to lose sight of the future. It's so easy to lose sight of eternity. We live for the now. But the death of Jesus reminds us, don't just live for the now. And it's also very easy to be weighed down by our past, to feel so guilty and shameful and burdened and desperately guilty. But the cross of Jesus reminds us that we may not need to be like that. In fact, for so many people, not having forgiveness for past wrongs makes life quite unbearable. There's this psychiatrist, the head of a large English mental hospital. He's been quoted as saying, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Half of them released. But here what Jesus promises is not just forgiveness from man to man, but from God to man. This is why the Christian church, we must always be reminded of the death of Christ. Have you ever noticed in the gospel, we've never been uh, commanded or told by Jesus to remember his birth. We do. We celebrate Christmas each year. 
We've never been commanded to remember his miracles. Of course we do as well as we read it. We've never even been commanded to remember his resurrection. Though, of course, we do. But we've been commanded to remember his death. To remember his death. All the time. Life for so many of us gets so busy, worrying about so many things. Our essays, our works, insurance, rental, clothes, how people think of us. The death of Jesus is to be center. And that's what John Stott, he says this and reminds us. No Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. And so this was what that homeless John needed to hear. I was only in high school. He couldn't change his past. Couldn't bring back the life of his loved ones. But what he needed was not a picture that John Lennon paints for us. What he needed was what we hear tonight. He desperately needed that there is a God who can deal with his past, who can forgive his sins, who can make him acceptable to God, who can allow him a place at their banquet in heaven. I mean, I was only a teenager. I missed the opportunity. I didn't think too much about it. But now, as a pastor, it's the best part of my job. You might think I only work one day a week, but the best part of my job is to sit with people and to remind them, not of great godly Christian wisdom, but of the cross of Christ, where there is comfort, where there is motivation, where there is spurring onto love, where they are to be grounded. But now when I do meet up with people, I never get tired of reminding people of the cross of Christ. People will come and they will feel worthless and guilty. Things that bear on them, things that make them feel dirty and filthy, broken relationships, how they've failed morally, failed sexually. And this is all of us. And what does this tell us tonight? Well, you're not. The death of Jesus not only forgives your sins, it cleanses you, it washes you. Only the death of Jesus can deal with your past, and it has. Believe in him. It's the same message every time. You're feeling beyond saving because of terrible things that continues to haunt you. Well, it need not be that way. The same message. You can't change your past. Of course you can't. But Jesus can forgive your past and guarantee your future. You see, the, the central part of my job as a pastor is to remind you constantly that the death of Jesus is central. And it's the best part of my job because it is true. And so as we reflect on our own lives, we might feel we are more wicked and evil than we can ever dare believe. And that is true. But as we reflect on the cross, we'll remember that we are more loved and accepted than we can ever dare hope. And if we understand that, it changes everything. Changes every single day of our life. Changes not just now. Changes how we see our past and it guarantees us a future with God. And how do we know? How do we know? Jesus died for us. And he proved it, didn't he? And so a better song for us to reflect on. A better song for us to believe. Not imagine. Which is really, in the end, just wishful thinking. Pure dreaming. The world loves it. A better song is the one we'll sing. Behold there. 
Behold him there, the risen lamb, the perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my saviour and my God. Amen. Let's pray.